Welcome everyone. My name is Kamil Mahdi. I have, uh, I'll be chairing this meeting. Uh, I am, I've been until recently uh, visiting senior fellow here at the LSE Middle East Center. And uh, I am delighted uh, that uh, I'll be chairing this meeting with uh, Dr. Adam Hamir, uh, whom I'll, I'll have a word with you about. Uh, in a minute. But before we start, I'd like to please ask you, in case you have forgotten, to switch off your mobile phones, uh, everyone, and check that they are switched off. Um, now, uh, Dr. Dr. Hania will be speaking, as you know, about neoliberal development in Palestine and the regional question. Um, I want to draw your attention to uh, uh, his book, which is very much on the regional question, uh, with uh, a, an important chapter on Palestine. And I want to say something about, uh, about this work. Um, when the Arab uprisings uh, began in 2010-2011, there was a period in which there was a substantial amount of rethinking and soul-searching amongst uh, specialists and observers of the Arab region and of the Middle East generally. Um, this period was not really, uh, did not lead to a great deal of uh, change in the way uh, things, things are, are looked at amongst many uh, specialists. For a time, that soul-searching was, was really showing bewilderment. What happened? Why haven't we predicted? Uh, why haven't we foreseen the kind of movements that uh, emerged in the uh, Arab world? What do we need to do to change the way we look at uh, the region and the way we, we uh, carry out our, our analysis? What elements do we need to bring? And then developments in the region, the conflicts and the wars and the um, uh, we're back to talking in terms of uh, uh, sectarian uh, issues, uh, identities in, in, in abstract without relation, relating to, to the, uh, the way the lives of people are lived and the political economy of the region. In this way, I think uh, Adam Hania's work is quite, uh, is, is completely different. In this way, we see that Adam Hania's work is, I'm not saying it's unique, but it is uh, quite uh, different. It is a work that tries to look at the power structures uh, in the region, the way the power structures inside the region relate to the wider issues and to, to global power structures. So I really uh, strongly uh, recommend uh, the work, and there are copies here, uh, are there for, for, for you to, uh, the copies are, are out there at a reduced price in there. Um, I also want to say something about the way he's approached Palestine, because Palestine, as sort of, the way we looked at Palestine many, many years ago was really part of the uh, question of the relationship of the region to, uh, within the imperial power structures. This is 
largely been uh, forgotten. It's become a, a Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue or an Arab-Israeli peace process, which we keep hearing about all the time, but without looking at uh, the societies and, and, the, and, the, and the issues. And in, in looking at Adam's work, we see something different. We see uh, Palestine come, uh, and Palestinian society and Palestinian for social forces begin to come uh, back to, to life. So I won't take any more time. I, I think uh, the time is, is very valuable. So I'll leave uh, uh, Adam to talk for about 40 minutes, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to firstly thank you all for uh, uh, inviting me to speak today and for, uh, for coming along. Um, as uh, 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 Dr. Mahdi uh, said, I'm going to be speaking tonight about neoliberal development in Palestine, focusing in particular on the West Bank, and the reason for that I'll, I'll, I'll come to in a second. Um, it draws upon the chapter in the book, but also on some recent field work. Uh, I've just returned from, uh, from Palestine, actually, a week ago, after spending uh, a month and a half there. So a lot of what I'm saying uh, tonight is based upon some of um, the reflections and some of the field work over the last the last few weeks. I wanted to begin just by uh, saying a few uh, short words about the book itself. Um, when I set out to write the book in 2011, 2012, uh, the, the, aim, the aim wasn't to present an account of the uprisings as they're unfolding going on at the time. Uh, but it really was to try and set the, the, the preceding uh, period as up front and centre in the uprisings as they were unfolding. That was the aim of the book, just to, to try and set the political economy context uh, of the uprisings um, themselves. And in particular, to confront the argument that the uprisings were simply concerned with political authoritarianism, that it was a question of democracy uh, and uh, people seeking to overthrow dictators and uh, authoritarian governments. What the key argument made throughout the book um, is that we can't separate out the political and the economic spheres in the Arab world, um, that we need to see these two spheres as, as fused, uh, and that dictatorships in particular are very much a functional outcome of the way that capitalism has developed um, in the region, particularly through the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberal era. So that's, that's kind of the one of the major themes um, that comes uh, through through the book itself. Now, in this regard, there's one chapter that focuses on Palestine, uh, and particularly the West Bank. And as uh, Dr. Mahdi uh, pointed out, uh, what I try to do here is to move away from the kind of exceptionalist discourse that we often hear about Palestine, that it's a question of uh, humanitarian, uh, uh, it's a humanitarian question, a question of rights violations, of course not denying the tremendous rights violations that, that go on um, uh, in Palestine, but to, uh, rather to, to try and set Palestine within the political economy uh, framework and to look at uh, the way that the changing political economy, particularly of the West Bank, helps to shape uh, class and state in the region and therefore has a, a tremendous impact on the politics um, uh, uh, of, on, on Palestinian politics. So that's kind of the, the, the approach um, that I've taken. So, 
with this in mind, uh, as I said, this, this presentation uh, talks re refers to the chapter, but also uh, on some of the recent field work. I, I had uh, the privilege of traveling quite extensively in the West Bank, meeting uh, uh, activists, meeting uh, NGOs, uh, Palestinian Authority officials, uh, um, business people, academics, and so forth. Um, it's it's a, a work in progress. It's not meant to be the final word, certainly, on these matters. Um, but uh, let's, let me begin by actually looking at what are the kind of key questions that I'll be looking at. So two things that I want to uh, uh, examine tonight. Firstly is the impact of the development strategy, uh, and I'll explain what this development strategy is in, in some detail, adopted by the Palestinian Authority since 2007 uh, on the nature of class and state uh, in, uh, in the West Bank in particular, and I'll, I'll come to in a second why that focus, and how that uh, uh, affects the nature of Palestinian politics. And secondly, how does this development model uh, uh, intersect with global and regional uh, actors? including uh, humanitarian forces, NGOs, as well as regional um, states um, in, in the Middle East. Now, very quickly, uh, just to set some theoretical questions, and you really do get a sense uh, if you visit Palestine uh, or follow the literature, this is uh, really an issue of uh, uh, becoming increasingly an issue of, of immense importance. And it's quite interesting to see the change that's happened over the last four or five years where the issues around the Palestinian development model uh, were not really dealt with much in the academic literature. Today it's become a number of people, I know there are a number of people in this room who are working on this topic as well. So it's interesting to see that uh, its, its impetus or its importance um, has certainly increased. So how, what are some of the, the theoretical approaches? And I, I'm not... Uh, won't spend a lot of time on this, but just to uh, note the dominant approach, and this certainly comes through uh, the uh, work that you see uh, of a lot of NGOs uh, and a lot of multilateral and bilateral actors uh, in the region, uh, the World Bank, uh, the IMF, and other uh, forces. It's certainly the um, assumption of the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government as well, that uh, there is a link between peace building and state formation, that what needs to happen happen is uh, proper state formation, setting up the right governance institutions, uh, particularly the right kind of market instruments, better integration with global and regional markets. Uh, if that can be put in place, if that can get uh, done right, then uh, we will have uh, a step towards peace. Okay, so there's a link between peace building and state formation in here. It's kind of nicely summarized in this, uh, this uh, new discussion that's going on now, or it's been going on for a couple of years, but this economic initiative in support of Palestinian statehood, or sometimes called the Palestinian Economic Initiative, which has been promoted by the Middle East Quartet, uh, led by Tony Blair, uh, as well as by um, uh, Kerry, uh, John Kerry, in his uh, recent visits to the region. So so there's a heavy emphasis, uh, particularly in the Kerry Plan, on the kind of economic uh, development plans uh, with the logic that if this is right, the governance structures, the economic is got right, then um, uh, peace will be uh, achieved. Now, this has been um, critiqued by, uh, from a number of different perspectives. Uh, and uh, again, I, I won't go into too much detail on this. Um, but there is the obvious point that's uh, been made by uh, uh, many authors 
quarters, and that is the occupation still exists. Um, the, the question of uh, uh, the Israeli uh, control of movement, of region, of the economy um, uh, is still present. And to what extent is it possible to speak of development or economic development in this context? Okay, when the occupation is still is still present, the occupation restrains and conditions um, these kinds of processes. Uh, some uh, authors uh, uh, have been talking uh, about a settler colonial approach, a way of understanding development in the West Bank through the lens of settler colonialism, particularly uh, using models uh, or trying to do comparative studies with places like <coughs> South Africa um, and other settler colonial states, understanding the way that uh, the structures of settler colonialism uh, inter, interpenetrate uh, uh, domestic or indigenous societies um, and, and thereby shape uh, development outcomes. And there's a particularly interesting uh, uh, journal or an issue, special issue of journal uh, Settler Colonial Studies, which came out in 2012, which um, discusses some of these points. Uh, there is also some uh, interesting work being done on, on, on uh, the link between uh, this uh, emphasis on state formation and uh, counterinsurgency, trying to make the argument that actually uh, this logic, this peace building through state formation isn't unique to the question of Palestine. It's actually become a feature of counterinsurgency uh, uh, discourse or counterinsurgency techniques uh, uh, at a global level and Mandy Turner and others have been uh, working or approaching this. Then there is also again a much uh, a broader discussion around the development discourse as a whole and the, 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 the kind of uh, uh, depoliticizing or technocratic emphasis that comes a lot comes through in much of the development discourse and particularly in this kind of mainstream um, mainstream approach now uh, there's there's a lot of value in all of this stuff and, and I, I really uh, uh, there's not enough time to look at this in detail but uh, what I, what I'm trying to do uh, is is very much uh, uh, I think complement uh, a lot of these uh, critical approaches but to look more deeply at how have the how has Palestinian society internally changed um, as a result of the development models that have been adopted by the Palestinian Authority and that have been promoted by uh, the uh, 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 global powers. Now, uh, this, this is something that uh, I think is very important because understanding these changing class and state structures, as I hope I'll be able to point out today, has a very big impact on um, the nature of politics uh, in the region. So some of the key arguments. Firstly, uh, the neoliberal development model uh, that we see, and I'll explain this in more detail, uh, uh, reinforces a process of territorial disintegration um, that is occurring uh, in, the, in the West Bank. Um, uh, it is something that is uh, 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 really based upon an obfuscation or a denial of power relations. So again, mentioned earlier, this technocratic assumption about uh, development, that if we just get the governance structures right, uh, it, it misses out what are the power relations that exist um, uh, in, uh, in development, by development actors. 
Um, secondly, and I'm going to spend some time on this, there has been quite a significant transformation of Palestinian class structure. Um, uh, and this is connected to the internationalization of regional uh, capital, and particularly capital from uh, the Gulf states, the Gulf Cooperation Council, or the GCC states. And I'll look at this in a little bit more detail uh, a little bit later. And thirdly, that neoliberalism, uh, this kind of development model, acts to reinforce uh, uh, an atomization of the Palestinian uh, uh, people. Um, and this, what I mean by this is that there's a turn, it tends to reinforce a turning away from collective struggle, the notion of collective rights, popular struggle, towards um, an individualized uh, consumption, individualized um, approach mediated through finance in particular. Okay? But this is not, uh, and I'll point to some of the, the points of hope, I'm not trying to be a, a pessimist here, uh, that this is unsustainable and, and that there is um, contradictions and points of, of breaking uh, here. Okay, so um, let me move on very quickly. Uh, for those uh, unfamiliar uh, with the region itself, I'm going to be speaking particularly uh, about the West Bank. And the reason for that is that very much the West Bank has been the focus of this model. Okay, in fact, it's called the West Bank First Approach, um, uh, of, or often described as the West Bank First Approach. So I'm not going to be speaking uh, much about Gaza, although we can talk about that um, in discussion. The West Bank has a strategic uh, uh, position within this overall, overall um, approach. Now, uh, clo closing more uh, or looking more closely at a map of the West Bank, these maps are from uh, a UN organization called OCHA, which, uh, O C H A, uh, OCHA, which, uh, if you're looking for kind of uh, maps and, and information about uses of water, electricity, uh, uh, settlement construction, and so forth, um, it is by far and away the best um, resource uh, for these types of, this type of information. Um, very briefly, to explain uh, the situation in the West Bank uh, uh, and the different colours that we see here. Uh, the Oslo Accords in 1993 divided the West Bank into uh, three areas, areas A, B and C. Okay. Um, now, area C, which is this kind of purpley uh, shaded colour, uh, is around about 60% of the West Bank. Um, areas B and C, uh, sorry, areas A and B, uh, which is the yellow shades, constitute uh, the rest of, of, the, of the area. Now, uh, most, the Palestinian uh, population uh, is concentrated in areas A and B. Okay. Um, this is not has not always been true. It's a it's a fact that's been made. Um, uh, it's it's been made a fact through um, a process of expulsion, particularly after the 19 or during the 1967 war, um, in which this area here, the Jordan Valley, uh, was very much a, um, uh, a key Palestinian agricultural zone. Uh, many uh, Palestinians have been forced to uh, leave that area and move to towns and cities that are based in areas A and B. So areas A and B are the yellow areas. Uh, uh, area C is under uh, full Israeli control. Okay. Um, 
most importantly, that control is manifested through uh, control of movement, control of uh, checkpoints, um, military checkpoints that essentially encircle Palestinian uh, towns and, and villages in the areas A and B, making it possible, um, although not always the case, but uh, quite possible for the Israeli military to shut down movement between Palestinian areas um, very, very easily. Um, it would just take uh, a, a few military jeeps in its, uh, to shut down the major, uh, the major towns um, in the West Bank. Uh, now, uh, Israeli military control of the area is also manifested through uh, settlement uh, construction. And uh, it's a bit difficult to see on this map, but there are three major settlement blocks um, which uh, encircle the Jerusalem area. This is the Maria Dumim uh, block and other assorted settlements around uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the aerial settlement, uh, which, is, which is here, uh, dividing uh, uh, Ramallah, the Ramallah area from Nablus and um, the rest of the North Bank, uh, nor nor northern areas of the West Bank. And then the Gush Etzion settlement block, which is here around the, the Bethlehem uh, area. So these, uh, uh, what in conjunction with uh, a military control, these settlement blocks um, uh, essentially divide the West Bank into uh, north, south, uh, north, central, and southern areas. And again, uh, if you, you can see, um, essentially uh, cut across these areas. So uh, Palestinian, it's very simple, very, very simple for the Israeli military to shut down the West Bank, um, uh, 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 basically just through that control of movement and because these settlement blocks form barriers between the major Palestinian areas. Now, uh, there are other aspects of control, and, and we can again go into some of the detail around this, um, uh, perhaps in discussion. Uh, uh, by the way, one thing I should point out is that settlement construction um, has actually tripled since um, the signing of the Oslo Accord. The number of um, the number of settlers living um, in the West Bank uh, has tripled. It's now around it's over half a million um, settlers living. Um, living in, in the West Bank. Now, uh, in addition to these uh, uh, physical controls, uh, we also have, of course, the wall, um, which I'm sure you've heard about, the separation barrier, um, which uh, uh, follows, partly follows the green line, but also uh, moves away from the green line in important points, which is another physical barrier. Um, in some areas, such as Calcilia, uh, it virtually entirely surrounds um, the city, okay? So it can be very easily easy to shut off um, uh, movement. Uh, there is also control over uh, water resources, um, uh, particularly the major aqua water aquifers um, in, the, in this part of the, of the West Bank um, that remain under Israeli control. Uh, military orders that prevent Palestinians from digging wells, um, particularly in areas, areas C. Um, uh, and uh, very importantly, and I'll come to this point in a second, uh, uh, there is control over borders, uh, any kind of uh, um, external borders, so borders with Jordan as well as movement into Israel uh, or, or else, elsewhere. So um, this uh, uh, all comes together to be a very uh, uh, powerful system of control. Now this is, this is very much the context in which Palestinian development strategy takes place. 
Okay, so the, the point I made earlier where you have uh, uh, an argument made by a lot of people that how is it possible for to speak of development in this kind of context, um, uh, there's, there's clearly uh, some element or that can ring true. But to speak more concretely about what this development strategy is, uh, and as I said, I'm going to be talking particularly from 2007 onwards. Okay, now this was uh, a moment where there was a split uh, between the West Bank and Gaza, hence the, the focus on the West Bank first uh, model. Uh, 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 this split occurred 2006-2007, and foreign powers, particularly the United States, as well as um, the European Union, uh, uh, sought to build a, a link with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Okay. Now, one way they did this was through a major uh, donor conference and the largest uh, conference of this sort ever, um, where they, uh, which was held on December 17, 2007, in Paris, uh, where there was 7.7 billion dollars promised to the Palestinian Authority, um, uh, based upon adoption of what was called the PRDP, the Palestine Reform and Development um, Plan. Okay, which was supposed to run from 2008 to 2010. Now, this, uh, this PRDP plan uh, was, or, or support, donor aid to Palestine was contingent upon implementation of the PRDP. Okay? So we can see it's very a, a central um, element of how uh, donors, and I'll talk in a second about how important donors are, uh, to understanding um, or, uh, within the donor, donor viewpoint. Now, the PRDP uh, also set up a trust, a trust fund that was managed by the World Bank, headquartered in Washington, D.C., through which donor aid would be channeled to the Palestinian Authority. Okay, based upon implementation of this of this PRDP. Now, what did the PRDP say? Uh, firstly, um, it's very explicit, and I would uh, encourage people who, who aren't familiar with this to have a look at the actual um, plan itself. Um, it uh, is very explicitly situated within uh, a neoliberal economic uh, uh, approach. So it says it aims for a diversified and thriving free market economy. Around this time, the Palestinian constitution was also adopted, which enshrined in the constitution free market principles. Article 21 of the, the Palestinian constitution uh, says that Palestine will be a state based upon free market principles. Okay? It's enshrined in the constitution itself. Um, led by a pioneering private sector that is in harmony with the Arab world and is open to regional and global markets. So we have this basic assumption that we're looking at uh, uh, integration with global and regional markets, uh, uh, private sector uh, driven growth, okay? Um, and this is the way, uh, this is the kind of development model that is approached. Now, there were three main policy components to the PRDP. The first was uh, public sector fiscal reform. And, and in this sense, uh, uh, and again, this is nothing new, uh, in particular, it's, it's, it's quite common to many states um, throughout the region, but it talks about uh, uh, reduction to the size of the public sector, particularly public sector wages. Okay, so a freeze on public sector wages, um, a freeze on hiring, uh, uh, this, this type of thing, uh, reducing the, the fiscal expenditure. Uh, 
secondly, our focus on private sector-led uh, development. So here, um, again, it speaks about the enabling environment for, for the private sector. And the focus uh, within this section is on the construction of industrial zones uh, that will be located on the edges of these areas that are areas A and B that I spoke about. So just to skip back to this map, um, there's a discussion of an of a industrial zone just here outside of Jericho, which I'll speak about in a second, as well as a, a discussion industrial zone up here, okay, in Jelamy near, near Janine. Okay. Um, uh, there's also one in Bethlehem uh, that, that was mooted at the time. So industrial zone development. Um, these industrial zones uh, would uh, bring in or aim to attract uh, regional investors, um, foreign investors. The one in Janine is, is being backed by a Turkish, uh, Turkish company. The one in Jericho is being backed by, a Japanese, by the Japanese, but it's open to, to all um, investors and basically uh, offer the the typical kinds of uh, uh, tax holidays, 0% uh, uh, tax uh, for the first 10 years of investors, cheap labor, um, uh, Palestinian labor, uh, and production. The one in Jericho focused on agro-industrial products. The one in Janine, uh, it's a little unclear, but probably light, light manufacturing. Um, now, these, uh, I'm going to speak a little bit more about these industrial zones um, in a second, but it's, it's, it's kind of the centerpiece of, of uh, the development part of it. Now, the third uh, component to the PRDP was uh, uh, security. So here, uh, the, there was a, a massive allocation of, uh, bud, uh, of uh, the budget, the Palestinian budget, towards um, security, building up um, security forces. In fact, this was the largest portion of all funding within the PRDP. Okay, was was given towards um, security, uh, and the security was actually being run by uh, a U.S. Uh, general who you may have heard of, uh, Keith Dayton, uh, who was put in charge of training uh, Palestinian uh, security forces um, in in the West Bank as well as in um, as in Jordan. Uh, so this continues to be uh, the la uh, a main focus of of the development uh, expenditure um, in in the West. In, in the West Bank. Uh, the last most recent uh, uh, development plan, 40% 40 40 of spending on governance was actually spent upon security, okay, including the construction of um, new prisons. Uh, okay, so this is, this is kind of the PIDP. Now this, as you notice, goes up till 2010. Where did it go after that, or what happened after that? Um, there is, uh, it was supplanted uh, with the Palestine National Development plan in 2011, which is just finished, uh, and currently there's a draft uh, under discussion, uh, hasn't been adopted yet, uh, I believe, uh, uh, for 2014 to 2016. Now, the focus of these subsequent plans, and again, these are available on um, the Ministry of Planning website, uh, remains largely the same. Private sector-driven uh, uh, led growth, trade and capital market integration. Um, although there is perhaps more emphasis Emphasis on Area C um, that you can notice in on, on kind of development projects in Area C. Interestingly, the World Bank also put out a recent report um, on Area C um, uh, in uh, development in Area C. Now, this is very much 
this whole model that I've described is very much uh, the centerpiece of uh, what is uh, currently being advanced by uh, John Kerry um, uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the Kerry Initiative, as it's been described. Now, the Kerry Initiative, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't. I've, I've seen uh, uh, what are supposed to be copies of it in Arabic. I haven't actually seen an English version of it. Um, but the Arabic version, uh, it, it discusses in some detail what the expenditure will be on, and it's much along the same kind of lines of industrial zones, um, private sector uh, focused initiatives. Okay, so. What was the uh, the uh, the consequence of these kind this kind of development uh, model? How has this impacted uh, both labour and capital markets, um, or the structure of uh, accumulation um, in the West Bank? Um, as I as I noted, was an important question. Uh, oh, one thing I should point out uh, before moving to that is the is the significance uh, of aid in actually funding uh, these these projects. Okay, um, aid increased by almost 500% to uh, the, the, the Palestinian Authority over the, last, over the last decade, okay? It reached $3 billion in 2009, 50% of the Palestinian, um, entire Palestinian economy. Um, now, in many cases, aid is, and this is clearly was expressed to me in a lot of people that I, by a lot of people I spoke to, aid is actually used to mitigate and manage problems arising from the occupation itself. So one of the most ubiquitous sites in the West Bank at the moment are all of these brand new roads um, connecting areas A and, A and B areas uh, uh, built by USAID. Okay, um, and they have a big billboards always announcing that they were uh, a gift from the American people um, to uh, the Palestinian people. Uh, now, these are these are everywhere um, in the West Bank. Now, this this kind of aid uh, is very much, and, and uh, many people express this sentiment is is that they essentially uh, build the infrastructure for the occupation to work because these these are roads that can be very simply shut off at any moment. Um, so they're, they're nice roads, they look, they're nice and uh, newly paved and uh, well lit in some cases, uh, but uh, they can be, they circumvent settlements and can easily be shut um, at, at any time. Many of these roads, of course, were actually destroyed uh, during the Second Intifada um, by, by uh, Israeli military aggression. Now, so that's, that's one critique that's often made. Um, there are a large number of donors and multilateral agencies uh, involved uh, in the in the uh, in the West Bank. Um, in fact, uh, and the number of NGOs increased uh, extraordinary figure, 61.5% from 2000 to 2007. It's hard to get an exact estimate, but um, uh, some in, uh, people that I spoke to uh, told me about 2,400 NGOs, um, one of the highest densities of NGOs per. Uh, population in the world. Um, okay, I'll come back to the aid question um, in a second. So, looking at um, the this impact then on the uh, the socio-economic uh, structures, the first thing um, is what has this kind of development model, this private sector-driven growth, uh, this this emphasis on um, uh, uh, encouraging uh, private investment, uh, focused on uh, uh, seeing the uh, Israeli occupation uh, or continuing to be present, the Israeli 
trade occupation continuing to be present um, in everyday life. Uh, the first thing is that there has been, uh, uh, over the, this is a process that's begun since the Oslo Accords in 1993, but um, continues very much to this day, a shift away from Palestinian work inside Israel towards a dependency on the Palestinian Authority uh, itself. Uh, so a large proportion of the population in 2012, 15.8% of the labor force, uh, were, were working um, in the public sector, working for the Palestinian authorities in some, in some way. Now, this, this figure needs to be also considered, uh, it's not, people, not just people who directly work for the Palestinian Authority, it's people who may have relatives in prison um, who receive transfer payments, or it might be people who, whose families have been, or have family members killed uh, by the Israeli military and also receive um, payments from the Palestinian Authority. So um, a large proportion of the population depends in some way upon the PA. So here we can see one of the elements of this donor structure that is very important. Because so much of the population depends in some way upon the PA for their day-to-day -day survival, and the PA itself is dependent upon donor funding coming from outside, uh, it, it puts, uh, if you like, a political uh, a hold on the kind of options available to, um, to, to, Palestinian, to Palestinians uh, in, in moving in a different direction. There are still people who work uh, inside Israel um, and in settlements, about 9.6%. Um, work actually either in settlements or construction of settlements, these kinds of things. Um, the reason being that uh, wages are significantly higher, and I'll show you a graph in a second for this. Um, and the majority are working in the private sector, mostly in uh, very small scale industries, okay? Very small scale uh, firms. Now, this is a situation, this is the labor force I'm speaking about, but uh, we also have uh, very high uh, levels of unemployment in the West Bank. It's about 19%, um, this is in 2012, about 31% in the Gaza Strip uh, for comparison. Um, now, this very importantly when understand or looking at these unemployment rates, as I said, about 19%, is to remember that there is a very low participation rate. So the number of Palestinians who are actually in the labor force looking for work or, or um, potentially looking for work um, was uh, about 45.5 percent in 2012. So it's a very low participation rate. So uh, that means the majority of the Palestinian population is not in not, not potentially in the labor force, not working, not looking for work um, outside of the labor market. Okay, so that 20, the 19% has to be considered um, in that in that vein. Um, now, the other point I'd make about this is that uh, the population or the participation rates for women are actually the lowest in the world. Okay, the number of women who are in the labor market um, is 17.4%. Uh, uh, participation rate for women. Okay, so uh, this is uh, average across the Arab world is about 23%. So it's, it's a very low female participation rate. The reason for this is that uh, two important sectors, particularly uh, agriculture and, and manufacturing, have been hard hit um, by some of the, the structures I described um, earlier. There's also very high dependency um, ratio as well, 4.4 uh, per, per, per worker. Okay, so looking at some of these, uh, this, as I said, the, um, the 
Average daily wages, uh, the dark blue is the West Bank. Okay, this is nominal wages, average daily wages. So you can see that pretty much since 2008, it's remained fairly uh, constant, um, the, the, the average daily wage um, in the West Bank. Gaza Strip, uh, also some fluctuations, but fairly constant. The work in Israeli settlements, or Israel and the settlements, Palestinians who work in Israel and settlements, um, have uh, a significantly higher wage rate, and um, uh, that has been increasing over the last uh, few years. So this is the nominal average daily wage. Now, very importantly, we also have uh, relatively high inflation rates um, in in the West Bank and Gaza, or more so in the West Bank. Um, again, the dark blue is inflation rates uh, in, in the West Bank. And we can see that uh, it's been around uh, 4% in 2012, 2010, very high in, in 2008. Now, one of the, one of the uh, issues around the way that the Palestinian economy is connected to the Israeli economy uh, is that price fluctuations inside Israel uh, are reflected on uh, uh, prices in the West Bank. Okay, so that's, that's uh, uh, one of the reasons that we've seen, particularly prices for fuel, uh, which Palestinian authorities is uh, dependent upon Israel uh, for the import of, um, uh, affects, uh, affects inflation rates uh, high, quite high. So what we can see, putting those two things together, uh, uh, relatively high inflation rates, um, constant nominal wages, is that there has been a decline in real wages um, over the last few years um, within the West Bank itself. That decline was about 1.4% in, in 2012, or sorry, 1.7% um, in 2012. So uh, uh, the effective uh, wage, real wages that people receive um, uh, has, has been uh, declining. Now, I mentioned uh, government debt, okay? So uh, here we have a graph that shows uh, debt levels. And what this graph indicates is the significance of uh, aid uh, and donor funds uh, and debt in general uh, for, the, uh, for, the Palestinian, uh, for the Palestinian government. If the, you look firstly at the blue line, this line here, okay? This is uh, a graph of public debt as a percentage of uh, domestic revenue. So you can see that um, this has been increasing and now exceeds 100%. So the number of, um, uh, the amount of debt uh, is uh, as a percentage of the amount of money that the government receives as revenue. This is excluding uh, aid and grants from the outside. Okay, excluding aid and grants. Now, if we include aid and grants, which is the total revenues, the yellow, we can see it's dropped to about 78% um, in 2012. So, uh, essentially, uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority is dependent upon these, the, these foreign uh, inflows um, in order to uh, uh, have a, uh, be able to cope with their, with their budget. This means, though, that there is a large uh, uh, amount of debt service that gets paid um, annually. In fact, in 2012, it was about uh, almost a quarter of domestic revenues went to pay debt service. So in other words, paying off loans um, that had been accrued over, over earlier, earlier years. Now, uh, we also have... This is an extremely uh, important point um, that is very, very apparent um, within the West Bank 
is the growth in both private sector and individual debt. What I mean by this is that uh, given this situation with declining real wages, um, uh, uh, shrinking uh, job opportunities uh, uh, and low participation rates, uh, increasing inflation rates, one of the ways that people have been able to survive is, dependence, is, is to seek debt from, um, from uh, banks. Okay? So there has been um, a very rapid growth uh, in, uh, in bank credit. Sevenfold increase in bank loans for consumer goods financing okay? from 2009 to 2012. It's a very, very dramatic um, increase. Uh, and this is now the largest sector of, private, uh, of bank loans to the private sector. Around one-third of bank loans going to consumer goods financing. There's also been a tripling in loans to real estate and construction. Okay, and I'll come to the significance of this in a second. So we see this um, uh, large uh, increase in, in debt. And if you travel around the West Bank, you will see all of these uh, billboards advertising, you know, buy a house uh, uh, or, or buy, a new, uh, buy a new car or buy a new uh, piece of uh, furniture uh, through debt. Okay, um, uh, this, is, this has been... Now, this, this increase in debt level is connected very much to um, the economic or the development strategy that I outlined, the PIDP and subsequent PNDP uh, plans. Okay? Um, it has been the development of mortgage markets, for example, the extension of or deepening of, of uh, credit um, has been an explicit goal or target of this, uh, these, development, um, these development strategies. Now, um, moving along as I'm running a bit short of time, uh, looking at trade, and very quickly, uh, and again I'll come to the significance of this in a, in a second, but um, we see here, uh, uh, this red line here, are imports, okay, uh, to the west, uh, to, to Palestine, okay, so this includes um, Gaza Strip as well. Uh, we can see very large increase uh, in imports, particularly since the signing of the or the development of the PRDP in 2007, okay, exports have remained relatively uh, stable. Okay, so we see again much of this import uh, is financed on on debt coming in. Now, these uh, uh, just to, one thing I should point out. I mentioned earlier that the uh, uh, Israel controls the borders, controls the movement and export and import of goods. Uh, the majority of this trade, both the exports and the imports, are with Israel itself. Okay, something like uh, eighty-four percent of exports from the West Bank go to Israel, and 70% 70, 70 of imports come from Israel. So we see um, a very close dependency um, uh, upon Israel, and thereby uh, uh, reinforcing another point that many people will, will express to you, is that the West Bank is an important market for Israeli goods. Okay, 70% um, of the West Bank's imports coming from, from Israel itself. In that sense, some uh, people have argued that loans or aid, um, uh, or, uh, which a lot of the imports are actually financed through, actually end up benefiting the Israeli economy um, uh, much more. It's a form of subsidy, subsidy if you like, for uh, a market, uh, the Israeli market. Okay. Um, we can see here a widening uh, uh, trade deficit. 
Okay. Now, so what does all this mean for the way that uh, capital accumulation takes place? I've spoken about the labour market, some of the more general characteristics of the economy. I want to look now at what do, how can we understand the nature of Palestinian capital itself? Okay. Where is accumulation um, taking place? Uh, there are, if you like, three major uh, elements to the Palestinian capitalist class. Okay? Um, uh, one is uh, returnee, sometimes called returnee capital. This is uh, 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 a Palestinian elite, much of which emerged um, in the Gulf states um, that then uh, returned to Palestine with the signing of the Oslo um, Accords in, in the 90s um, and held strong ties with the emerging Palestinian Authority. Uh, also, families and individuals that uh, historically have had an important uh, or privileged role within the, the economy of the area, particularly the northern areas of the West Bank and, the, and in Hebron, and those who managed to accumulate wealth through um, their connection with the occupation itself um, post-1967. So um, here we can talk about uh, uh, people, for example, who, who helped uh, some of the construction of settlements, firms, Palestinian-owned firms, that actually helped in the construction of, of settlements. Now these, these three groups have come in, uh, uh, they're distinct but linked in terms of um, capital uh, accumulation. What is clear, I think, is that the PA itself, the Palestinian Authority, has become increasingly a conduit for uh, capital accumulation um, in the West Bank. In other words, much of the aid that comes in uh, from the outside uh, somehow, it, through various mechanisms, ends up um, uh, facilitating the accumulation opportunities of these three, uh, these three groups. And I'll give you some examples um, uh, in a second. So, very quickly, I, I, I won't go into too much detail, but here we can think of this uh, class, if you like, structured on, I think, this kind of tiered level, where uh, there are many uh, uh, regionally imp uh, powerful firms, okay, within uh, uh, regionally Palestinian-owned firms that are, have a regional presence, particularly in the Gulf uh, states, and I've mentioned some of these here, who then work through holding companies in the West Bank, okay, uh, and then on the third level, connect with local um, Palestinian business elites. Okay, so these uh, three tiers uh, dominate much of the real estate, the financial processes, and industrial companies that are operating um, in the West Bank. Uh, this this three-tiered structure. I'll speak about some of these holding companies um, um, in a second. So, what are the possible moments um, of accumulation that we see? Uh, firstly, the banking and financial sector. Okay, now there are 17 uh, banks that are operating um, in, in the West Bank. Uh, 12 of these banks are directly related to uh, the tier one groups that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so, and these are the largest. Okay, of, the, of, these, of these banks. Um, uh, this has increased over the last few years. So, for example, the Bank of Palestine, which used to be a bank primarily located, located in the Gaza Strip, in 2008 received a major investment from uh, the Kharafi Group in Kuwait. Uh, it has now expanded across um, the West Bank, okay, become one of the largest banks in, in the West Bank. The Kharafi Group is now the major shareholder of, um, of the Bank of Palestine. Okay, so, 
uh, we can see, or the largest individual shareholder of the Bank of Palestine. So we see this kind of expansion um, that's taken place. So uh, the, the point I'm making here is that because of the increase in particularly uh, private as well as loans to the PA, PA itself through, these, through the banking system, um, one of the ways in which uh, accumulation has taken place is through um, the, the banking and the financial sector. Now, a second major uh, point of accumulation is real estate. And uh, I'll show you a few pictures in a second. Uh, massive real estate projects. Um, uh, perhaps the most uh, well-known is Roabi, uh, which looks like um, this, uh, which is being built just outside of Ramallah. Um, it is a, a, a real estate project that is funded by um, or, or owned by uh, one of the capital groups I mentioned earlier, as well as a Qatari uh, real estate company. So it's, it's um, a joint venture um, building this. It's, it's $850 million, um, I believe. Um, uh, now, this this is, this is promoted as one of the successes of the PNDP, um, uh, the, the, the latest development um, plan. Uh, there are other other projects as well. Ersal is, is probably the second largest, I believe, real estate project, the Ersal Center, um, which is taking place in the middle of Ramallah. Um, it looks like this. Uh, and this is... Uh, $400 million, a $400 million project owned by one of the holding groups I mentioned earlier in conjunction with a Saudi, uh, Saudi investment firm. Okay? So this is taking place um, in the middle of, of Ramallah. Uh, so, now, why is this significant for accumulation? It's significant because um, the, these real estate projects uh, uh, not only, off, in some cases, have received land directly from the Palestinian Authority, um, they also, uh, ha the Palestinian Authority has uh, passed laws um, forcing people to sell their land in order uh, to the development companies that are involved in these, um, in these projects. Okay, so the land has been bought cheaply. Some cases have been received for free for private uh, development companies um, that then sell their uh, sell these uh, housing blocks or residential blocks and so forth um, to individual consumers through the private mortgage market. So again, um, it becomes an important moment of accumulation. Industrial zones. Um, uh, I won't go into detail as I'm running out of time here, um, but this is uh, uh, the, the two I mentioned earlier. Um, these are still not functioning. Although, and I was slightly sceptical before um, going there about how serious these industrial zones are, but actually after uh, talking to people in the Palestinian Authority and visiting these sites, um, it's quite clear that there is a serious um, uh, uh, attempt at, uh, at uh, uh, engaging in these industrial zones. The industrial zones are privately owned, again, often from um, the, some of the, the groups I mentioned um, earlier. Control of import trade is another key moment of accumulation, uh, and you can see the significance of imports, as I mentioned um, earlier in that earlier graph. Um, very much of the uh, agency rights or distribution rights are owned by individual firms uh, or holding companies. One of the biggest is this APIC, um, Arab Palestinian Investment Company, um, which is, again, mostly actually Saudi-controlled, uh, um, or Palestinians who were resident in Saudi Arabia and Saudi companies um, who 
control, agency rights for um, Procter and Gamble, for um, Hyundai cars, and a whole range of other consumer goods as well as other industrial um, activity. Um, there are other sectors as well, telecommunications. So this is this is the moment um, of uh, of uh, or some of the moments of accumulation. Okay, I need to need to wrap up. I'll just skip very much to. I had some pictures here, but I'll skip to um, the uh, uh, some of the political implications um, of what I've said. Uh, Growing levels of inequality, as I mentioned, um, it's interesting this has become uh, much more a focus of Palestinian political discourse, uh, uh, more uh, protests, uh, uh, people speaking about the question of inequality. Okay, the, 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 the growing gap between the wealthy in society and uh, the poor. Um, there is, however, as I mentioned, an internalization of what's been described as neoliberal norms. In other words, mediated through finance, through uh, mortgages and other forms of bank loans in particular, people seek uh, uh, stability or the status quo in order to be able to kind of um, ensure that they're able to pay off um, their loans. In many cases, people who I spoke to said, look, my whole salary goes to the bank each, each month, um, uh, uh, particularly people working for the Palestinian authority, uh, the salary comes in, then goes to various um, loans. There's a fragmentation of uh, political horizon connected to this because it's, uh, it's looking at seeking some kind of um, stability uh, 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 and not necessary uh, liberation of the area. Um, this is contradictory and it's unstable, though, I think, because there is, um, as I mentioned earlier, some protests, uh, some new movements, uh, new uh, labor formations uh, uh, that are formed around this, as well as new political formations. Um, but the question is, what kind of alternative is really possible, given the structural constraints that I outlined? Um, and that, I think, is something that uh, is really a moment, is, is becoming increasingly debated by I don't think people have uh, an answer to um, at the moment. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh...